0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Today, we're talking about windmills at sea with Michael Smolens, and then we'll get local takes on what will happen now that the Remain in Mexico program has ended. First, the news. Federal health officials released guidance Monday that gives fully vaccinated Americans more freedom to socialize. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said people who are two weeks past their final shot face little, if any, risk if they visit indoors with unvaccinated members of a single household. They don't have to wear a mask or social distance. The CDC also said those who are fully vaccinated do not need to quarantine or be tested after exposure to the coronavirus if they have no symptoms. California has denied at least three San Diego County school districts the chance to reopen for in-person learning, even though the districts received the county's okay. San Diego Union High, Poway Unified, and Carlsbad Unified applied to open their middle and high schools through a special state exemption process. The exemption allows schools that were already open in mid-January to remain open even though the county has not yet reached the red tier. A county spokesman said the county had approved the district's plans after careful review, but the state's Safe Schools for All team has the final say and denied those applications. Petco Park will keep its name through at least 2027 thanks to a renewed naming rights deal between the San Diego Padres and local pet supply chain Petco. Announced Monday, the revised agreement extends by two years of financial relationship that dates back to 2003 and initially included a 22-year term. Under the deal, Padres players Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. will act as social media influencers for Petco. Terms of the extension were not available. However, the initial contract included a $60 million purse, making it one of the most expensive naming rights deals at the time. Offshore wind farms or windmills at sea are gaining popularity as a source of green energy. Scotland, China, and Rhode Island have them, and many others are being planned for the East Coast. California has considered offshore wind farms before, but the efforts haven't gone anywhere. That might be changing. Michael Smolens is the UT's political columnist. So Michael, give us some background here. California has considered building offshore wind farms for years, but it's never gone anywhere. Why is that?
1: Well a large part of it is uh, because of the Navy, uh, not that they're being obstinate, but as you know, particularly in San Diego, we have multiple uh, you know military facilities, particularly with the Navy. and so do other cities. Uh, Southern California in particular, is a very difficult spot because just their training, their operations, uh, they are very concerned about uh, those, you know basically large windmills out in the middle of the ocean. So that's been a big part of the problem uh, in the past.
0: Last month, Assemblyman David Hsu, a Democrat from San Francisco, he introduced a bill that would mandate offshore wind farms. What would it do exactly?
1: Well, it would um, it it would gradually build up wind farm power to to a very large degree. And as far as the location, they're looking at off the central coast, like off of uh, Diablo Canyon and then up farther north uh, off Humboldt County. Uh, There's not as much Navy activity up there, which is a big plus. There's still some in the Central Coast, but the Navy has come around saying, you know, there's possibly ways they can work around that. So that's the big thing. And, you know, the first step in terms of uh, the power would uh, power like hundreds of thousands of homes uh, by the end of the decade. Uh, And then eventually, what they want to do is do, do enough that would basically do more pow- power than all the uh, land-based solar operations combined so you can th- see that's a an awful lot of uh, energy ge- generation
0: I mean so is southern california just off the table completely or is is it possible that some would be built here
1: uh, right now it looks to be off the table i mean you know you never know what may happen in the future but that's been a big issue because uh uh largely of the, the navy but you know frankly also the winds are better up north um now th- Keep in mind, these are going to be you know, 20 to 30 miles off the coast of California, so you're probably not even going to be able to see them. And you know, people have studied them, and there are very strong winds in those regions that they're looking at. Not only that, but one of the uh, issues about offshore energy development is that the winds still blow at night, not nearly as, as long and as hard, but uh, they often don't do that in the places on land, uh, so uh, the, the generation really slows down.
0: Will you help me understand just how much power this would produce? So you were saying more than um, solar operations on land. I mean, would this be one of the biggest power providers or, or what does that look like?
1: Oh, absolutely. yes. Uh, and And that's one of the of the many logistical and environmental and technological issues just scaling up to, to that w- will be a, a big uh, concern because there just aren't things like this done bef- elsewhere. Um, there are big solar operations, but uh, one like this in California would really be unique.
0: Why are these like offshore solar wind farms being considered, you know, some of the best ways to create renewable energy?
1: Well, it's it's clean energy and, um, you know, in a lot of cases it's, it's hard to find the on land, uh, areas that are appropriate, that have the kind of wind you need. Um, You know, we have some out in East County here in San Diego, but, uh, you you know, you just can't put them up anywhere. You need the right circumstances. So that's part of it. It's, it's really an interesting question. Why hasn't California done this sooner given our, you know, we, 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 really take pride in being advanced and seeking alternative energy sources but it's just been difficult for environmental reasons the military reasons and so forth and that's why we've seen other countries around the world and even the east coast of the united states really uh, r- various steps ahead of us on this uh, front
0: okay environmentalists are for this you mentioned the department of defense um you know has some reservations but they seem to be coming around fishermen are also worried what have they had to say
1: Well, they're concerned about giving up, uh, you know, very lucrative fishing grounds, uh, and these areas would be off limits to them. So they're examining that. They're not out and out opposed as yet. A lot of people are learning about it. And while some environmental groups are on board, others haven't endorsed it. They want to find out more. They say they really need to take a look at uh, you know, this, what the real impact is on marine life. There are a couple environmental organizations right now that are just opposed to the legislation for a variety of reasons, in large part because of the uh, concern over the birds. That's been a concern at, at, on at shore uh, windmill operations as well.
0: You also wrote that there are some logistical challenges related to building the farms, transporting the power they create. Can you go over
1: that? Sure. Well, as I said, that, that these are going to be 20 to 30 miles off the coast. It's very deep water. Most of the windmills farms we see out in the ocean are, you know, the, the, the structures are sunk into the, the bottom of the ocean, into the seabed. These are actually going to be floating, but anchored to the, the bottom of the ocean. Uh, there's one other place off Scotland that's like that, and it's been very successful. I mean, these are huge Uh, you know, windmill operations that that are like hundreds of feet high. So it is rather remarkable just to think that they would actually be, you know, floating, quote unquote, but they're going to be very secure. Uh, So there doesn't seem to be a lot of issue with with that aspect. The technology issue in terms of transmission is a concern, particularly up in Humboldt County. Humboldt County has less than 140,000 people living there in the entire county. It it doesn't have much of an electricity grid, and frankly, it doesn't need one. So if you're going to bring that electricity on land, what are you going to do with it? Uh, and the idea would be to transport it south to the Bay Area, which is very populous. Uh, that's about a five hour drive. And how you get there is difficult because the tra- building heavy transmission lines over that kind of rugged terrain up in the lost coast of California in that very uh, you know hilly, open and wild area would be difficult. So that's one of the challenges. There is some talk about whether they can lay a, a you know, a very huge cable underseas all the way down towards the Bay Area, or at least farther down the Central Coast, where it could come inland, where there's more infrastructure to, to be able to handle that kind of electricity. Do you
0: think this is inevitable, that these wind farms will be built?
1: I kind of do. I think that the momentum is getting uh, there. I think the fact that they've really zeroed in on the North Coast and the Central Coast and, and kind of put aside for now, if not forever, Southern California. Uh, it's sort of the way of the future as well. We've been seeing it around the world. And, uh, you know, the fact that that you've got the Navy, that's, you know, they've been in discussions, they, they haven't been obstinate, but they obviously, you wanna hold the line on their their concerns. Uh, there seems to be some movement there. Maybe it doesn't happen, but I, it just seems like the momentum's getting there. The fact that the legislature's getting involved uh, and, you know, we're, we're up against it. We've got some big, uh, clean energy goals in this state in the coming decades and they're going to need things like this to meet them.
0: And finally, when might we hear more? When will the legislature hear this or decide on it?
1: That's a little uncertain. I mean, this year, certainly uh, the bill was introduced just last month in February. Uh, the legislature works kind of at, at a slow pace. Uh, it will go through the committee process and then ultimately I'm sure it'll get massaged along the way. But, you know, the idea is that at the end of the legislative session by the fall, um, it will move to the governor and he will sign it, and that will really give a boost to this whole operation. And like I said, you know, I think one of their big goals will be to get more environmental groups on board, labor groups like it, because they're talking about creating 14 to 15,000 jobs. Uh, so one of the big construction trade unions has uh, heartily endorsed this bill.
0: Now let's turn to opinion. The Biden administration has ended the Remain in Mexico program that was established under former President Donald Trump. Instead of waiting for immigration court cases in Mexico, asylum seekers can now wait in the United States. Today, the opinion section published three essays on this topic. Laura Castaneda is our community opinion editor, and she edited these stories. The essays you ran this week are by a local immigration attorney, border angels, and also a public health professor. And the ones I read basically said that ending MPP is a good thing, but more is needed. What more is needed?
2: Well, I think that there was initially a big mess to clean up. And by that, I mean, you know, by not allowing these families To come into the country and be processed like these cases used to be, you have a lot of families um, suddenly stuck on the other side of the border. That is not the country that they want to remain in. And Mexico was not prepared to handle any, you know, the influx of these giant numbers of families um, who were pitching tents all over the city, who were looking for work, who were definitely, you know, for sure not prepared to be there for, you know, six months or longer. So there's a lot of issues that ended up, um, you know, being created from this one new uh, system that the Trump administration had suddenly thrown on everybody.
0: And how did Mexico deal with that when when this this protocol was in place? Like, you know, you had border angels, right? And that is a group that does provide relief to people waiting at uh, the border for asylum. But how how did they
2: handle it? Well, they're just one of many nonprofit organizations that got involved once the, you know, the problem started to fester. But basically, um, you know, Tijuana was thrown in a loop. The whole uh, the government there was just not prepared to deal with everything that happened. And and a lot of the residents were upset, too. They were like, you know, we don't want all of these people who are not from Tijuana all of a sudden invading our city. So you had two sides. You had a humanitarian you know, effort and people who were trying to help. And then there were some issues that arose, um, people getting restless, you know, there were uh, some problems that the police were dealing with and and that didn't go over too well. Um, And then you have the situation with the shelters, you know, the shelters were busting at the seams. They didn't have enough food and housing for people. So people were pitching tents in these um, kind of makeshift cities. So there were a lot of issues and then now add COVID and a pandemic to that. Imagine, you know, what suddenly happened. So a lot of the nonprofits from the U.S. like Border Angels and a couple of the other organizations started collecting food and supplies and just trying to help the people, help the people that were stuck, basically.
0: And now that the policy has changed and people are being allowed to wait here
2: and we have a new administration, is the mood changing as well? I think it is, but there's still a lot of confusion, you know, that right now they're allowing 25 people to come in. Um, And, you know, if you have such a backlog, if you can imagine, unless you hire a slew of judges, immigration judges that are going to hear these cases and post more people at the border to process all this paperwork as they're coming through, there's still going to be a, you know, backlog, a lot of confusion. Um, And I also just heard a report that the unaccompanied minors, uh, the numbers of unaccompanied minors are starting to go up at U.S.-Mexico borders. So, you know, it could be that people from other countries are hearing there's a a more compassionate administration here in place now in the United States and maybe they'd have better luck getting in I mean there's real no, you know, there's no, um, I don't have any data to back that up what I'm telling you I'm just telling you what I'm hearing. Um, I heard a, uh, on a podcast from the New York Times this morning that that was an issue that was being looked at so. There's still a lot of unanswered questions, and I think until they add more staff to deal with these issues, that we're not going to see big, giant changes.
0: Do we know if the way that the asylum cases are actually being judged is changing, like um, just the standards they're using to decide whether or not to
2: allow people to stay? You know what? I have not heard a lot about that. Um, the attorney that wrote for us has a lot of asylum cases um, that he handles, but he didn't really go into detail about that. Maybe he just doesn't know yet. Maybe you know, as I said, there's still there still isn't enough. Um, if you think about the magnitude of people that were just stuck there, um, one family could be five people. You know, you we don't we don't know that so. Given the fact that only 25 people are being allowed to come in daily, that's a lot of processing that still has to take place. And just
0: one final question. I know that the Biden administration is also working on reuniting
2: um, children who are separated with their families at the border. What is going on there? Well, apparently there has been a task force created. And there are uh, a number of children that are still kind of just missing, their families are missing. And there's various reasons for that. Some of the families probably gave up and just went back home. Maybe some of the families perhaps thought, you know what, I'm going to let my child remain in the system and try to get to the U.S. to give them a better life and keep them away from the violence and all these other horrible situations that you're hearing about from their home countries. So, you know, not speaking for them, I'm just kind of repeating what I've heard some of the inter- the people that were interviewed talk about Um, And, you know, having the relatives come forward, too, is also kind of scary when you know that all of a sudden, if you're undocumented in this country, that your fingerprints and your, you know, personal information is going to become available if you step up as a guardian. So that's probably keeping some people from doing it, too. But at least there's been a task force created where they're diligently, supposedly trying to make these children get connected with their sponsors or families and that was not happening before so you know hopefully with a short amount of time we'll we'll start to hear more about these children being reunited with their families
0: and finally we have a your say question the question of the week is the anniversary of california's lockdown is approaching how do you feel the state and the nation have handled the crisis and what lessons do you think we have learned or not learned Send your 500-word submissions to yoursay at sduniontribune.com, and be sure to include your name, neighborhood, and phone number. We won't print the phone number. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. We'll be back tomorrow.